Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I don't know what we're talking about today. So I am now going to introduce my co-host, Kevin. The ultimate irony of Mark saying that is because the topic that we're going to talk about today was his idea. Oh, it's this episode. Wonderful. I'm actually excited about this one. Thank you for that transition. (laughs) So today we're going to do something I usually don't do when it comes to history. Um, In general, my interest in history ends after about 1918. I prefer to study the late 19th century and sprinkle in a little bit of ancient history and medieval history, as you can probably tell from the first eight episodes of the podcast, which all fall into those categories. However, today we're going to spend our time in World War II and then toward the end uh, of the war and then into majority chunk of the episode will be in the 1950s. This is definitely a little bit out of my comfort zone, but Mark wanted an episode on a CIA-backed coup. And I figured, why not? It's nice not having to think of the topic for once. I'm helpful. (laughs) In June of 1954, the citizens of Guatemala City, the capital and largest city in Guatemala, found themselves being bombed. It started with leaflets, which is not a particularly scary form of bombing, until you read the leaflets, which say that there was an invasion going on of Guatemala. A liberation army was coming to free the Guatemalan people from their communist government under a man by the name of Jacobo Arbenz, the president of Guatemala for the last three and a half years. Those leaflets were supported by a radio broadcast that said much of the same and was designed to terrorize the population. And then those leaflets became actual bombs and machine gun bullets. And throughout June of 1954, the citizens of Guatemala in their capital city were terrified that the United States was invading. And it resulted in the fall of their president and a subsequent 30-year-long civil war. Today, our story is depressing. I mean, that intro was depressing. And it's hard to describe it in any other way. But it'll be the story of blossoming hope on the part of a third-world country just aggressively stamped out. So... On that bright and cheery note, let's go back in time a little bit before the events of June of 1954 and the fall of Jacobo Arbenz to the World War II, which is a much brighter point in history, clearly. Oh yeah, roses. In early 1944, Guatemala was like most countries in Latin America. They had this relationship with the United States. All the countries of Latin America had this relationship with the United States where they were able to control their own political freedom. So they had complete political independence. They were ruled by their own people. They had their own governments. They were totally independent states. However, American economic interests were controlling all of the actual money and the economy of these countries, usually through direct corporation involvement. There's a term for this, and it's called a banana republic. There's a joke about khakis in there. But I just, I wasn't on it for that one. So listeners at home, fill in your own joke about pleated pants. I was going to make a joke about overly expensive, really simple white t-shirts. Is that a Banana Republic thing also? Oh, I had an overly expensive white t-shirt from them once, so oh, personal experience. I think I only ever had khakis. I didn't know they sold khakis. What? I've never really Come gone. Come on. I've never gone in the store. Okay, this is why this is not a fashion podcast. No. No. 
So during the early 1940s, this banana republic of Guatemala could be considered a semi-feudal state. It hadn't really changed in the 100 years since its independence in the late 18, uh, in the 1820s. The country was very ripe for development, and yet nothing had ever happened. Like most Central American countries, there's the tropical, Pacific, uh, tropical Atlantic side and the drier Pacific side. And the, the natural vegetation just allows for a, an immense amount of different crops to be grown. However, we don't see that. I guess it's kind of part of what we do with this podcast is we talk about things that people haven't really heard of. And the big question here is, who cares about Guatemala? Who cares about this country that has these natural resources? It's this tiny country of only about 2 million people. It's completely controlled by the United States as far as everything it can do on an international sphere. So this entire episode's about this country, so I do have to spend just a tiny bit of time explaining what this country is like so that when we talk about events that happen, we have some basis in understanding. So as I began, it was a semi-feudal country. This is one of those places where 2% of the people own over 90% of the land. There was a true aristocracy. In Guatemala, the aristocracy in the first place we're gonna start was the European-born or uh, the people who had European descent. When the Spanish conquered Guatemala, they brought over people from Spain, but then a bunch of other Europeans uh, settled there. And these people set up these massive farms, which are called latifundia which is a Latin word that found its way into Spanish that means a self-sufficient manor that has a massive amount of agricultural land around it where one family controls hundreds of families who work on that farm and produce their crops. Now the European-born population, most of which were mestizo at this point, which is the Spanish word for mixed, so mixed native, mixed European blood, they are controlling one crop and all of their farms produce one thing, coffee. I love these people. They're my, they're my people. The coffee producers? The coffee people. That's fair. Now, these farms aren't incredibly efficient. They have you know, hundreds or thousands of acres, yet at the same time, rarely is more than between 10 and 20 percent of that land actually cultivated. And that brings us to the next groups of people. When the Spanish conquered Guatemala, they conquered the Maya. The Guatemalan people were called the Maya, and they produced those massive pyramids. They had a fully functioning, elaborate society with written language, with intense astronomy, and a very famous calendar. Mark is currently smiling. I, I was going to jump in with some end-of-days prediction jokes if we, didn't, if we didn't touch there naturally, but we did, so continue. And they definitely did have their end-of-days because the Spanish obliterated them. And the people took two approaches. About half of the native Maya became what later would be known as Ladinos. And that's kind of a cross between the word Latino and ladron, which means thief, but not in a, like, more like a scoundrel, kind of a lighthearted thief way. And it was basically those who adopted Spanish language and some of the Spanish culture. And they would form kind of that intermediate middle-ish class. There's not really a middle class, but the intermediate class. And the other group of people that forms about half of Guatemala are called the Indians. And they are the Mayan language speaking Maya. And the Indians are the ones, along with some Ladinos, that work on these large estates. And to say that they were looked down upon would be the understatement of understatements. The aristocracy thought that they were beyond useless. They thought they were lazy, they thought that they were stupid, and they thought that they could uh, just become nothing better than these 
slow indentured laborers on their lands. And one of the most frustrating things for these people is they worked on these massive estates that had the vast majority of their land fallow, completely untouched, yet the Indians weren't given enough land themselves to grow enough food. So surrounded by this land that they don't own, they're starving on their own little plots of land. So even though there was some economic growth and the population was rising in Guatemala, the standard of living for these people throughout the 1940s was going down. The Indians were chronically suffering from stomach ailments and they were malnourished and they were suffering under this system that made them actual serfs. So if you remember our episode from the very, very beginning, the William Walker episodes, William Walker instituted these peonage laws where if someone was caught not working, they were jailed. That was just the set system in Guatemala and had been forever. Every Indian and Ladinos, they had to work 150 days a year. They literally had like a punch card like you get from Tobos, mm. that you had to have signed off that every single day their boss would say, yes, you worked on this day. And if you don't have enough of those punch card punches, you are jailed. Or and even worse, if they had resisted at all, or they had made baskets on the side and tried to sell them to another latifundia or sold them to another country or done anything other than do their work, they were often just massacred. We're not talking peasant uprisings that are then squelched. We're talking their landlords are displeased with them, so they kill a whole bunch of them. This was happening multiple times a year and was open. People just did it. And because, yet, because the Indian population is just not large enough, not powerful enough, all of those necessary things to do anything about it, where there's no, there's no concern about backlash on behalf of the owners of the Latifundia. Latifundia? Latifundia. Oh, so close. But they're tired. They're starving. They're spending their entire time trying to survive, and they have no weapons. The aristocracy is embedded into the military. That's how this country was run. There's one other entity that's important to note that controlled the only other crop that Guatemala produced, and that's the, the United Fruit Company, which is now Chiquita Bananas, by the way. And they probably are not the good guys in this, in this story. Well, at this time, they at least do pay their workers better. And so oh. instead of controlling coffee, they control bananas. And they're on the Atlantic side, which is the tropical side. And they initially bought up land a long time before, back around 1900, and named it Bananera. And they set up this large, very, very large uh, plantation. But they didn't just stop there. United Fruit basically spread itself into the infrastructure of Guatemala to the point where they controlled it. United Fruit bought the one port that Guatemala had on the Atlantic side. So any trade that Guatemala had would go through United Fruit, who would charge them high fees, and United Fruit boats had primacy over any other boat, and it's not like Guatemala had much trade anyway, but the one port on the Atlantic side is actively owned and very corrupt by the United Fruit Company. I'm just having flashbacks to our first our first series about William Walker in this one. I've got Vanderbilt and boats going over rot rapids and it's all in my head right now. Unfortunately, it's not that exciting. There's no boats going over rapids, but it's the same basic setup. So if you understand that, it, it, the country is very similar geographically. There's even a giant lake in the middle. The other thing that United Fruit did was they bought the company that controlled all the railroads. So Guatemala had railroads. They were American-sponsored and purchased by a long-before-government. And United Fruit Company had a complete stake, like a 100% stake, in that company. 
so that all the trains ran for United Fruits Bananas. Bananas trumped everything else. But what this does is it kind of prevents the Guatemalan economy from growing at all. And it, it produces some weird side effects, like between Guatemala City, the capital, and uh, Puerto Barrios, which is the port on the Atlantic side, there's a railroad, but no road. So you can only move bananas and coffee across the railroad. It, and this isn't like a passenger railroad. This is a freight This is railroad. freight only, yeah. I'm not sure if it was purely freight only, but that's its purpose. Right. So this country is controlled that way. The aristocracy has no desire to promote social development. And its economy is completely stagnated. And so in the early years of World War II, we have a typical Central American government for this time, run, run by a guy named Jorge Ubico. He is a dictator in the most classic dictator sense. He came to power in a military coup. He developed a cult of personality. He thought that he was like Napoleon in terms of this grand leader, even though he had never fought a battle and really never done anything of substance. He even is, this, had, is this part four of our grandeur series? It seems a little <laughs> bit. But he had like busts of Napoleon and pictures of Napoleon. He thought everybody loved him. Oh, he was like a fanboy. He was a total fanboy. Wow. And he thought everyone loved him. And his advisors kept telling him that people think you're amazing and great. And that people hated him. Right. Because under his rule, from the late, you know, mid-30s to until the mid-1940s, there was no freedom of speech, no freedom of press. There was a secret police. No one could assemble. Labor unions were underground. Pretty much every form of authoritarian control that you can have, he practiced. And he had the support of the aristocracy who controlled the military as a way to monopolize power with violence. He massacred the Indians that tried to do any sort of social change. He um, actively suppressed uh, anyone from gaining economic value by keeping prices artificially high. They even played with the economy to like make it worse on people. Right, just kind of going hey, can we increase productivity and decrease the agency of our people by making changes and going, eh, let's toy with it, see what happens. They're not people. Exactly. They really didn't it's think insane. they were people. They thought the Indians were subhuman. They treated them like slaves. They were about as close to slaves as you can get, that kind of that surf word that is that quasi-slave. And there was, no, there was no advancement. But then something started to happen in Latin America, specifically in Central America and along the Caribbean coast, which is kind of its own area of Latin America. During the late 1940s, toward the end of World War II, maybe because the U.S. wasn't really looking because they were dealing with other things, but there was this spontaneous uprising in a few of the countries, which were all controlled by dictators, such as like Costa Rica and El Salvador um, and Venezuela, where these democratic movements began. And Guatemala is one of the examples of these democratic movements. It starts in 1944, where Ubico was having one of his many uh, parades, where all the people paraded around, and they looked all you know, fancy, and they said how great Guatemala is, how great he is, and the people hated it. So finally, a bunch of teachers and students, mostly the teachers, just refused. They said, no, we're not doing this anymore. We refuse. And we, not only that, we refuse. We don't like you, and we want to be a democracy. We want to have elections. And so they started a protest movement, and immediately they were massacred. Yeah, you, you probably could have seen that coming. However, the movement didn't stop. You also could have seen that coming. Some of the first people involved were killed, and they became martyrs. And they were killed by being trampled by horses. And so they became, and they were usually women. And so it's in Guatemala, very, that had its own... Yeah, that has, that has some special, uh, like mythological narrative value. 
And this starts this democratic movement. Well, one of the first things that happens is Ubico is, he loses control of the military and he, the military forces him to resign. That's how power was transferred in Latin America. Dictators usually didn't last 10 years. Some coup in the military would happen because some, he, the, the dictator would bother enough people that something would happen and he'd be removed. Yeah, when the military makes all of the major, major decisions, yeah, it doesn't take a lot to get you deposed. It doesn't take a lot for, for somebody with a pistol to go, we'd like your resignation, please. Exactly. And so that first transition is into a military junta, which is a group of men who basically hold power together. That's what junta means in Spanish. The leader of that was a guy by the name of Federico Ponce, who just wanted to make himself into another ubico. The first thing he does is start to clamp down on the movement that was really starting to rise up. Anybody who had any ability to read, really, or had any money beyond just subsistence levels joined this movement. And that's how you get that like 5 to 10% of the population, which is enough to get a movement going to really push the government to topple. And they tried and tried and tried, and for a couple of months, Ponce keeps them suppressed. But during that time period, they start to develop this, this group of people, start to develop political parties and this political movement that's trying to get an election. They want an election that's going to allow them to nominate their candidate, and they know he'll win. Ponce has a different idea. He says, that election sounds like a great idea. He says, I am going to have an election, and I am going to make it fraudulent. I'm going to give the vote to all the Indians, and I'm going to point a gun at them and say, vote for me. Boom, I have 50% of the population voting for me. Therefore, I will win the election. If there's enough conservative people plus the Indians, I will win. The election starts, and these parties start to organize themselves, and they're trying to find their candidate. In this time of political upheaval, the younger members of the military find an opportunity to start to change the country. And in comes two men, one of whom will become the central character of this story. These men are by the names of Francisco Arana and Jacobo Arbenz. Now, Arbenz will become our, our main character, our protagonist in this story. And of course, he was a real man in history, but it's impossible for me to not think about history in terms of narrative and characters. And it can sometimes be difficult to realize this was a real person who had real hopes and dreams and a complicated background. And Arbenz is definitely one of those people. Arbenz and Arana were lower-ranking officers. Arana was the, the dominant one. He was older, and he was a colonel, whereas Arbenz was a captain. And they had actually had to flee the country during uh, the, the conflict between Ubico and Ponce, and had decided to return and really had a bold move. They gathered together um, just a few followers and they attacked the military headquarters and they killed their commanding officers and basically stripped away a lot of the power from uh, Ponce's government. And they instigated a bit of a mini civil war because they called up all of the workers and the citizens to come defend them. And there was this battle between the parts of the military and the, the police against the citizens and a small portion of the military for a brief period. Because they're, these are a faction of that younger part of the military that is starting to align themselves with the concept of democracy. Exactly. They were actively supporting this idea that Guatemala could open up to a democracy. They were going to set up an election. They were going to 
produce a different kind of country, and they believed that. And I think there was also a, a sense of opportunism, especially on Arana's side, that they would be able to, one of them would be elected president. Mm, that was the okay. hope. But they saw the writing on the wall that unless they went through this process and gained themselves power through consent, they were not going to succeed. They were just as sick as the rest of the population with the military dictatorships. It takes a little bit of time, but Arbenz and Arana, they do succeed. They call out the population, the population fights back, and they form a military junta of their own, except at this time, instead of just taking over power, they say there will be an election in a certain amount of time. And they allow a true free election. And for all intents and purposes, this is a real free election as free as Guatemala could have an election. Right. And by, by a real free election, you mean the two of them are not actively conspiring to manipulate the vote in the same way that their predecessors were. Exactly. So free with like six asterisks. Well, it's a little, a little more than that. So one of the best books that you can read for this is it's called Shattered Hope. It'll be in the show notes. And it's by Piero Glehesis. And I love this book for one major reason, because it's more footnote than book, which is just perfect for this podcast. Excellent. I mean, it's got as many footnotes, it's like a study Bible. This book's intense. Okay. And it's so incredibly detailed in its research and its portrayal of these stories that I, I was able just to get so much more from this. And what Glehesis says about this election is he says it's as free as possible with the concept, the concept that the natives, the Indians, are still basically being forced to vote for whoever they think. So there's these blocks of Indians voting for people, and a lot of people don't really have a choice, but it's diverse enough that it still counts as free. There's, there's enough competition that no one person gets to point a gun at all of the Indians. It's like seven people pointing the gun at like seven groups of them. It, it's better. Sadly, it, sadly. Is it? I get that it is in like a meta contextual sense, but like for the Indian who still has a gun pointed at him, not necessarily better. True. <laughs> but there's this explosion of democratic thought and an opening of the country's discourse as parties start to form. There have never been real political parties for any lasting amount of time in Guatemala. Suddenly there's these groups of people organizing around this progressive democratic advancement in this country and they're trying to find a candidate one thing they do is they don't want either arana or arbenz it's not that they don't allow them to run but they start to try to put together a constitution and one of the main things in the constitution that they want to establish is you cannot be in the military and be president so they right at the beginning they kind of nix the idea a constitution is developed that allows for free democracy free votes, free assembly, free speech. The press is opened up to criticize the government. Labor unions become legalized. And as this movement takes hold, they find a candidate. And you can tell that the political scene in Guatemala was very, very bad, very contentious, because they look for someone who doesn't live in Guatemala, a Guatemalan who had been exiled a long time ago. Oh, interesting. Okay. And they find a guy who is a professor in Argentina by the name of... Juan Arevalo, and he's this massive man, just, just broad, huge man who is incredibly charismatic. And they contact him, they being these different leaders of these various political parties, and say, hey, would you like to run for president? 
of Guatemala. We have this actual election coming up. They, oh, and there's multiple parties all kind of courting this guy's... Okay, okay. And there's other people running, but a huge group of the country is like, we want him. Because he had written books about political philosophy and even had his own form of political uh, ideology that he called spiritual socialism. Here's our first instance of socialism infiltrating the scene. So Arbenz and Arana are like, okay, fine. This guy can run. They both have their own ideas for power, but Arevalo, Arevalo shows up and he can't even afford his own plane ticket. They have to do that for him because he's so poor as an exile. When he arrives into the country, there's still the civil war going on, so they have to hide him. But once that civil war ends, the election goes through and Arevalo just dominates. And he wins easily. And he wins a six-year term. And throughout the term, he gives speech upon speech about how Latin America needs to expand its education and it needs to expand its spiritual well-being. People need to have thoughts and opinions and they need to be able to express those opinions and that will help lead to reform, which is very different to what the country used to be. And probably not something that the, uh, the people in control who own all of that aforementioned banana and coffee land are super stoked on. They're not, and they are actively plotting against him it's the entire right. time. And a large part of these same military leaders and aristocracy are exiled. So there's a purge of the military. In fact, they actually eliminate the rank of general and get rid of all of them. And there's now only colonels. That's the highest rank in the military. And with that purge, there is a settling of the country. This movement has enough power. They have a leader who has this vision. And they start to open up the country. And it really blossoms in the six years under Arevalo. The key way that it happens is education is expanded. There's not only more schools, but they start to pay teachers better. They allow the newspapers to criticize the government. So now there's political discourse going on. And there's actually bouncing around of ideas. They open up the book lists so that instead of most books being banned, suddenly there's this outside flood of information coming into the country. And there's the first little bit of land reform and reform of the social consciousness of the country. In general, Arevalo focused more on trying to organize all the other democracies in Latin America and become popular that way, and he more or less failed. He didn't really do too much. He gave a lot of great speeches and was otherwise just important for establishing this new concept of freedom of thought. Suddenly, you, you can do something different than what had happened before. And the labor unions became powerful, and new ideas came into the country. And that becomes important, because people like Jacobo Arbenz begin to read. And when you begin to read, and read political philosophies, they make you question the status quo. During Arevalo's tenure, Jacobo Arbenz starts to read communist literature. And he and his wife, Maria Arbenz, who Gleesis interviews repeatedly in the Shattered Hope book, begin to develop a consciousness that they need to change this country. So there's democracy, that's a great step in the right direction, but the status of the countryside is unacceptable. Unless they fix that problem with the latifundia and the control that United Fruit has and that just grinding poverty, the country can't advance. When over 90% of the people are starving every day, you can't do anything. 
to make your country better. And the writings that become the most important to them are those by people like Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin and Stalin. They see those movements as a way to advance the country. And if the first communists start to pop up in Guatemala. Now, they're still actively suppressed, and these beliefs are only somewhat incorporated into Arevalo's ideas and the way he wants to run the country. He does allow labor unions to start fighting the workers under United Fruit Company. They actually form into unions, and they start to actively fight back against the company. And in comes the United States. Yeah, you knew that was going to happen. We heard, we heard about uh, labor unions in countries where U.S. capitalism is invested, and then we heard communism, and you know that the U.S. is on its way. And of course, this is now in the 1940s, the late 1940s, during the beginning of the Cold War. The Red Scare. This is during McCarthy's Red Scares, when this thing starts to pop up. So not only is Arevalo having to deal with the fact that there's this conservative element of his country that he's more or less exiled, and they're constantly trying to reinvade and take over, over and over again. In fact, they try to do so 25 times. And he has to repeatedly fight off these usually fairly incompetent invasions. But now he has this group within his own country that is starting to pull hard to the left because they see legitimate ways to reform their country. And we'll get into that. But when the United Fruit Company sees itself under attack, they start to call on their buddies in Congress. United Fruit Company is headquartered in Boston, of all places. I wouldn't have expected a banana company to be from Boston. Yeah, tea, maybe. Tea, yes. There's lots of that in the harbor. They have connections that go very deep. And in fact, at this time, the man who would become Secretary of State, John Foster Doles... I recognize that banana-related name. He is actively monitoring the situation. Now, still, this is under the Truman administration. Well, are, you, are you to tell me that Dole is getting ready to whip something? That was bad. Oh, I know. I want to go to Disneyland. I want Dole whip. <laughs> now, this is still under the Truman administration, which follow along with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, good neighbor policy. And that's one of those things that'll be a question on the you know, American history test. But what that was basically saying is under FDR, under Truman, the United States didn't really want to involve itself with the Latin American countries, maybe help them economically, but pretty much abstain from active involvement. Most people don't know, but the U.S. invaded countries in Central America with Marines multiple times in like the 1900s, 19-teens. So that We should do a series on that. That'd be interesting. We probably will. But that, that stops under FDR. And even though United Fruit Company is complaining and complaining and complaining that they're there's communists in this government and they're trying to nationalize us and that's a bad thing because we have these interests and we're, we treat our workers so well which they so, didn't so few of them are starving to death compared to the people who all of them are starving to death it's literally that yeah yeah it's it's we kill so many fewer of our employees than our neighbors like help us we're the good guys now there's these charges of communism in the american cia which just started to exist. It gets formed at the end of World War II. And its first uh, director, a guy named Dean Acheson, is presented with these ideas to try to overthrow the Guatemalan government under Arevalo. So they thought, well, there's this big group of the country, these old military leaders who will help overthrow it. They're doing these things that even though they're very weak and not really that well done, they're starting to reform the countryside. They're affecting our corporate interests. We got a plan. 
So the CIA comes up with this plan called Operation PB Fortune. All one word, all capital. And it's subtle. It's it's just this idea that they can arm some form of coup. It's backed by the other local dictatorships, um, very famous dictatorships of Somoza in Nicaragua, Trujillo in Dominican Republic. These are like classic Latin American multi-decade dictatorships and they they don't like the idea that there's democracy happening around them because that's going to challenge their authority so they say hey we got this idea let's i'll we'll help you let's overthrow Arevalo. but the cia ends up nixing the idea because they know that they don't have the support of the army in guatemala and the people are li- loving these changes their lives are way me- way better i love that none of the reasons listed for the cia not overthrowing the government is it's a democratic government, and the only people who are on our side for this are other dictators who want the status quo to remain. That's not the issue. The issue is we don't have the government support or the military support. The logic behind the American government at this point in CIA is that any possible opportunity for communism to develop in some of these poorer countries is very realistic. It, there were places like China at this point where the rural communists under Mao had taken over the country. And that was terrifying to them, the idea that there could be communists in Guatemala. And remember, there are. Toward the end of Arevalo's reign, reign is probably not the word, his term, there is this movement going, and it's getting the ear of people like Jacobo Arbenz, who's one of the most respected people in the country. And all the major thinkers and all the major reformers, the ones that actually work hard and do the job to make these different government institutes help to improve people's lives, they're all run by people who are starting to talk about communism openly. That scares the government of the United States. That scares the United Fruit Company. They might get nationalized, where that means the Guatemalan government buys them and actively kicks them out. That's a massive investment lost. That's a 50-year history lost. Well, purchased, but whatever. Purchased, yes. Right. That's their logic, and the idea that Guatemala deserved to have a democratic government and have some self-rule wasn't ever considered. And Glehesis, in his book, really hits that point consistently. He tells the, the story from the Guatemalan perspective, and he interviews every human being, except Jacobo Arbenz, really, involved in this story. And Arbenz becomes this incredibly enigmatic man because... We just don't know much about him. But we do know that this is the time when he develops his true zeal to reform the country. Arevalo's term ends toward the end on a very rough note. Remember, we had Arana and Arbenz. Arana was more supported than Arbenz was, and they were vying for who would become the president next. They, They both knew we are not going to win up against this exiled leader. So let's just hit, like lay low and six years down the road, we get, to, we get to try again. We still want the power. And the entire time they're cultivating their followers. Remember, they're all military leaders and now there's actually labor union leaders as well. So Arbenz, he's a little bit more on the civil side. He's got more backers in the tiny middle class. He's got more backers in the well-read class um, up in the mountains where he's from. And Arbenz is an interesting guy because he's from uh, Swiss German extraction. He actually would look like a German to you. And so he was a very unique looking person for Guatemala, whereas Arana is more the, um, he looks a little bit more Spanish, a little bit more native. And so they kind of both were playing on that. Arana would play on his 
um, more military, conservative past. He still votes, you know, wants the democratic process to be there, and he cultivate his little you know, personality cult within the military, whereas Arbenz was in the younger military as well as the educated classes. And so you got these two movements. But then Arana is killed, and it's almost certainly by Arbenz. It's a very murky situation, but I don't have time to go into it, but Arana goes off to check a plantation. On his way back, he's stopped by supporters of Arbenz as well as some of the unions which Arbenz was working with. The unions are starting to get really big and powerful at this point, and there's a shootout, and Arana is killed. Boom, Arbenz has lost his main rival. So when the election does come to the fore, there's a lot of displeasure around Arbenz. Yet the movement of the country is going toward his beliefs and he's starting to develop his ideas. He and his wife would stay up late at night and invite people who had similar views to their house and they would talk and talk over the course of the time period from when Arana dies to the end of Arevalo's term. And they developed this true political consciousness that they need to reform the country. And his wife, Maria, she was from El Salvador, and she actually was so politically interested in politics, so politically connected, that her parents had to like force her to stop reading political books, hmm. which was unbecoming of a woman at the time. Arbenz, on the eve of his election, is convinced that the only way for Guatemala to improve itself is to become a true communistic country to have a socialist area where you know, there's peasant cooperatives in the countryside and everyone's paid the same and there's these powerful unions in the same vein as like Lenin and Marx. But the ironic thing is the way he thinks to do that is to open up the country and make the country a capitalistic powerhouse as much as they can. Part of communistic theology, I, I do mean theology because that's really how they used it, was the fact that in order to become communistic, a country had to go through capitalism first. They had to develop from feudalism into capitalism, and then capitalism's evils would convince the people to become communistic. Interesting. Practically no communistic movement has actually done this. They usually just skip ahead, and they don't let it naturally happen. Mm -hmm. These thinkers, Arbenz being one of them, they thought the only way to do this was to to become capitalistic first. So Arbenz wins the presidency. He actually wins it fairly dominatingly. United Fruit Company backs off completely during the election. And one of the reasons they do that is they, they don't know what he thinks. They think he's kind of a somewhat inept, middle-of-the-road guy because all of his thoughts and development of his theories, they were all done behind closed doors. He never spoke about them out loud. So no one knows what he thinks when he's elected. They just right. know he's a, from the beginning, a supporter of the revolution, and he will hopefully keep a middle-of-the-road path. Well, and also, even if he's talking a little bit in public about his ideas, nuance is difficult to parse. And and in a conversation about, well, we, we want to end up in communism, but we got to go through some capitalism country to get there. For anybody paying attention in a crazy political climate, you're mostly going to hear, oh, capitalism, good, we're into that. Yeah. That I, sounds beneficial for our banana stand. And even there's that, always money in the banana stand. There's always money in the banana stand. And even that level of detail, I don't think was known by the people. Right, right, right. Um, I think the vast majority of people just saw him as one of the heroes of the revolution, and now it's his opportunity. 
he also had uh, you know huge ch- chunks of the country just liked him as the native son because he was from the second city of Guatemala. When he gains the presidency in 1951, he actually doesn't do much for the first year. There's a little bit of extra support to the unions. There's a consistent amount of you know, discussion and you know pretty much stalls out the movement. It doesn't really do anything. And he's more or less let to do his own thing. He's not really pushing much. But some of the first things he does is he starts to actively try to expand the infrastructure of the country. He tries to build a road from Guatemala City into Puerto Barrios. Where once there was only train tracks? Where there's only train tracks. And the idea is we want an alternative to the train tracks. He starts to support the unions. He actually sets up his his cabinet with a bunch of just middle-of-the-road, normal part of the democratic movement, which is still pretty conservative, don't want to do any land reform, don't want to change the country at all. He, he keeps his actual cabinet that way, but he develops what's called a kitchen cabinet, which is his actual advisors, the people he talks with and gets their real ideas, and they're much, much more left-wing. And in fact, one of the main guys that he has with him is a guy named Jose Manuel Fortuny. Fortuny is an outright communist, part of the, the communist party. And almost all of Arbenz's advisors are communists. Card-carrying communists. And that is important to know for what happens is they are communist. As much as they want to go through the capitalistic process initially, they do have that belief system. They are reading communist literature and developing their ideas from that. But it doesn't really turn into much at the beginning. One thing he does is he offers loans to people. And these are short-term, one-year loans to allow people in the countryside to invest in their land and to buy things. And it's one of the most successful government loan programs ever. Over 90% of the loans are paid back in full within a year. And it's basically a stimulus. He just pumps money. Turns out people just needed food. He just pumps money into the system. and They buy food. They buy machinery. They improve their tools. They do everything that you would expect people to do wisely with their money. All of that untoiled land. Well, exactly. And now these people see this land and they're like, we can take it. We can do something with it. Yeah. Look at these tools we didn't used to have. And this is the Ladinos and the Indian. And he starts to say to these people, you can do things. This is terrifying the upper class. (laughs) And this is terrifying the United Fruit Company. And it gets worse because he does something called the most bureaucratic name ever, Decree 900. That is a really good name. That's like a Futurama name. And Decree 900, which is passed in June of 1952, exactly two years before the bombings begin in Guatemala City that we started with, Decree 900 does something that had begun under Arevalo, but expands it a lot more. So under Arevalo, there was a little bit of land reform. One of the main things that had happened was during World War II, under um, Ubico and under a little bit under Arevalo, they had they being the Guatemalan government, had taken away the land of anyone who was German. There were German people who had some of the most successful latifundia, and they were all forfeited. And the Germans were basically kicked out during World War II. That happens all over the world. Right. German's not super popular during that particular war. And these become um, fincas nacionales, which are these like government-run latifundia, which basically still have all the same problems, except now they're run by the government. And there's... An, I've I, been to a DMV. Pretty much that, yeah. <laughs> and under Arevalo, there's a little bit of a 
trying to get the peasant you know, the peasants to run the farms a little bit more, but yeah. it's not well done. Well, the Decree 900 takes all of those and gives them all to the peasants. The Indians are given the land, the that ones is, owned by the government. That is a very large change. And they're given these land lease plots of land. I'm sorry, life lease plots of land. So instead of giving them to somebody and having mercury legal laws, it's that person's for life. They cannot lose the land. They couldn't be bullied to sell them. They, they couldn't sell them. So this is your land. It is for you to toil for the good of your family. It is not for you to sell as an investment. This is your land. We gave it to you because hunger is an issue. And that's just one step, right? Okay, this land's not owned by any of the upper class. It doesn't affect them at all. Well, what's the next step? Well, the next step is you give a huge portion of the uncultivated land to the peasants. So all of these coffee plantations, which by the way, were raking in money at this time because coffee prices were skyrocketing at this time in history. And it really benefits Arbenz because he's making enough money to invest in his country. If the coffee prices have been low, he couldn't have done this. So he's lucky right now. Yeah, strong government. Basically, yeah, he's able to take his surpluses and feed it back in as an investment. And that's a smart thing to do when you got that money. Well, he takes a look at these different, you know, latifundia, and he divides them into different sizes. And he says, if you have a certain amount of uncultivated land, that uncultivated land is being given to the, the Indians and the Ladinos. You lose it. If you are cultivating your land, you don't lose it. Use it or lose it is, is a very interesting uh, governmental strategy. And if the Latifundia were smaller, they weren't touched. Right. So, so like the middling aristocracy was untouched. Right. Well, because they probably don't have enough land to have a giant swath of land being uncultivated. Yes. They usually ran their farms better, too, because they had a more, you know, intense devotion to it, I guess would be a better way to think about it. You have to work to keep it. Yeah. You're, you're not too big to fail Guatemala edition. The medium and large... Latifundia, they were divided up much more. And this is directly affecting people. And the United Fruit Company's banana plantations were divided up too. Now, they are being purchased. So what the government did was they would say, we're going to buy this land based on what you paid taxes for it, your assessed value. So they would assess the value of the land and pay taxes on that. So they took that assessed value and they basically gave them bonds. So they like reinvested it. Yeah. Why, why do I get the impression that we're about to find out that the, that the United Fruit Company was not doing some super upfront tax stuff? Yep, that's exactly what's happening. He shoots, he scores. So, of course, none of these farms, including the United Fruit Company, were being honest about how expensive their land was. Of course they were. They are grossly underreporting <laughs> the assessed value of their land so they would pay less taxes. And so when the government says, oh, the here's irony. the money that you said we owe you, they flip out. Mm -hmm. And they go, like, frothingly mad. Right, right. They're like, this is not fair. We cheated on our taxes fair and square. How dare you? And at this point, there had already been some talk within the State Department that Guatemala's a bit of a persona non grata now it's like okay they gotta go <laughs> oh no the first thing that starts to happen during arbenz's reign i keep saying reign arbenz's term it's it's more like a reign than a typical term because he can like revoke all constitutional rights and he actually does it multiple times 
the United Fruit Company had decided, even before Decree 900, that they need to sway public opinion in the United States against Arbenz and Guatemala in general. And so what they do is they hire a, um, a marketer, a guy who is good at public relations. And the guy they hire is by the name of um, Ed Edward Bernays. And there's another book that I used to research this. And just a side note real quick, it's called Bitter Fruit. And it's the American perspective of this, um, this story. And it's by a much Stephen, worse cover. It's much older. And it's by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer. And it gives the story from the American like CIA perspective of what's about to happen. Also and they, in the show notes. And they describe Edward Bernays as a short, dynamic huckster with a vivacious charm and ego the width of several banana plantations. <laughs> I, that's the only quote I have for He's, today. He sounds not great. He's actually fascinating. He wasn't a bad person either. He was a like a very, almost like a libertarian, but more of the classical liberal sense, which is, uh, it, it's a gray area between them. But he was uh, the first guy to understand that public opinion could be swayed and focused. And he literally wrote the book on propaganda. He wrote a book called Propaganda. Doesn't seem like a great guy. But when he explains it, it's more of a, like a sociological book of, he, he asserts that a small group of people simply have more influence than everybody else. And the culture is run by maybe 2,000 people. At this point, the United States is 150 million people. And he says 2,000 people are really the swears of culture. And so if you can buddy yourself up with them, as he had. This is still functionally true. Exactly. Yeah. It's not been criticized since. He, he hasn't been challenged. His book is still right. Oh, I'm not saying he's wrong. But he wrote it in 1930. And so it's this fascinating view of the world. And he had made his, his entire career off of being friends with newspaper editors and actors and actresses and producers. And one of the first things he did was help to spread cigarette smoking to women. Because he was, he would hire famous I take, actresses. I take it all back. He is a good dude. <laughs> I, I think the show Mad Men is based off of him. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Because in at least a sense, you know? Right, right. I don't at know that At the very least, sure. like a spiritual mm -hmm. reimagining of his, his life. He would hire these actresses to smoke cigarettes, and just that in itself would help to spread the popularity of cigarettes. He'd actually worked for United Fruit Company to help spread awareness of bananas. Because for a long time, people didn't really buy bananas. They didn't know what they were. Like, What's this weird yellow fruit? In, in, in 2019, really in the last five to 15 years or so, social justice by way of awareness has become such a prevalent thing. Like everything is an awareness campaign that the phrase spread the awareness of bananas is so quaint. I love it. I love it. I get that people did not know that bananas existed at this point in history, but it's just so funny through a modern lens. It is, but it's your really the first instance. He's mostly the, pretty much the only guy doing this too, right. of a public relations campaign. So when United Fruit Company says, hey, we need, this, we need this country to be negatively viewed by the American population, he says, well, I know every newspaper man. I know every editor. And he does this whirlwind tour of getting them to come and visit Guatemala. And when they visit Guatemala, the United Fruit Company tours them around. Of course. And gives them the most jaded a view of Guatemala. So in the early 1950s, every newspaper is just routinely publishing these stories that in most cases are ridiculously inaccurate about Guatemala. 
Mm -hmm. And any Guatemalans that they quote are the exiles that have been kicked out by this democratic movement, whether under Ponce, Arevalo, or Arbenz, and they were all actively complaining about how their country had fallen by the wayside and was falling to the communists, and there's this constant fear that the communists are there. Red scare. Here's the short answer. They're not. There are communists in Guatemala. They do have Arbenz's ear, but they're not running the government. In fact, there's almost no communists in active governmental roles. The Communist Party is illegal until way late in Arbenz's term. Interesting. Now, is he a communist? Yes. But is there an established communist organization? Barely. And so the big fear that Bernays gets to spread is that there's going to be a beachhead in Guatemala and that the Panama spread Canal... Spread the communism to all the other countries. The Panama, Panama Canal is going to be challenged by the spearhead of communism. A.K.A. American interests will be challenged by the spread of communism. So literally every American views Guatemala as this enemy, almost this enemy from within. Things were so pleasant like 10 minutes ago. You had, you had people not starving to death anymore. You had successful loan campaigns being paid back. You had a whole bunch of stuff that sounded like it was going so well. And Arbenz is massively popular. And then you went and you messed up by, by messing with American capitalist interest. Arbenz is so popular with the Indians and the rural Ladinos by giving them land. And in general, and Glehesi spends a lot of time going over this, Decree 900 is successful. Yeah. It is the most successful land reform program ever. I have a, I have a serious question. Like, when you think about where he's at in this process of like, even, even up to that point of going, if you have unused land and you're a giant, one of these organizations, we're going to, we're going to buy that land off of you and give it to the people who work that land and everything. So they're pissed, which is why what we are about to go into, I'm sure, unfolds. Without U.S. intervention, was there enough steam and anger and power behind the people running these huge plantations to do anything about it? Or would the country have just continued down that road unchecked? One thing that Arbenz had was the support of the military. So the answer is yes. <laughs> or no. The answer is no. He would have been fine. He would have been fine. Okay. He has support of the military because he's their man. He's, he was a military man in the first yeah. place, and he was deeply respected. He was one of the best candidates of their um, military school. But he's, but he's, he's, so he's loved by the people, and he's loved by the military. So if he pisses off a portion of the top section of the aristocratic side of things, he's theoretically, he should be fine at this point. His programs are successful enough that he should be able to retain power and continue to expand these programs. Here's some good evidence for why we know that he felt fairly comfortable. Um, he allows a conservative aristocratic press to consistently lambast him on a daily basis. Okay, that's super uncommon for everybody around him. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. And that also shows a, he a commitment. He seems like he's not the worst. No, he's not. He shows a commitment so to the movement. Yeah. And throughout this, no one really knows what he thinks. We still don't quite know what he thinks. No one knows why he did what he did. The best we get is from his wife, who outlives him by a very long time. Yeah, this guy does not seem like he's long for this world. So let's continue the story. Okay, spoilers. So as this reform movement kicks into gear, and as Arbenz starts to cozy up more and more closely with the, the left-wing communist group of his country, who don't have any actual power but have the obvious influence over him, especially Manuel Fortuny, who is this 
major communist thinker and is uh, Arbenz's main speechwriter and just the one he talks to. As that's happening, there's behind the scenes grumbling, as we've already discussed, in the United States. So right as Arbenz begins his term, Dwight Eisenhower is elected president. And the, the American government switches from being Democrat to Republican. Now at this time in history, the difference between the two parties is much more overlapping than it is now. They were, they were a Venn diagram, whereas now they're two separate circles. Eisenhower had a much more aggressive look, outlook on how to handle communism, where during Truman's administration, their belief was, unless it's like, there's a communist party controlling the country, just kind of let them do it, because yeah. Arbenz wasn't technically a communist, and they had their groups within the government that you know went with Operation B PB Fortune they, to get rid of them, but they nixed them. They said, no, don't do it. Well, Eisenhower, he comes in, he goes, I want to end the Korean War, because it's communists. I want to root out any communists and squelch them. And he taps into the CIA. And just recently, the CIA had even become an organization. And its purpose was collection of intelligence. So under the first part of the CIA, the first like four or five years, they don't do anything covert. They just collect information like a spy network. Eisenhower is influenced by the fact that his department of, um, his secretary of state, the, the, the Pentagon, is run by John Foster Dulles. And the CIA director is uh, John Foster Dulles's brother, Alan Dulles. So there's two brothers who run the entire foreign policy apparatus of the government. And these guys are just career anti-communists at this point. And they have this past in Latin America with the United Fruit Company. They are, they are actively on the side of the United Fruit Company. And that's where they're getting their information. They helped to sponsor Bernays's you know, public relations campaign. And when they see this, they can only see Arbenz's movement in a binary, black and white view. There is the red communists, and then there are the dictators. They want to put a pliant government in control because a pliant government that is anti-communistic, which will almost inherently be a dictatorship, is preferable to any form of communism. You can't even let the movement start because like a disease, it'll infect the population and you'll have to, you'll have to suppress it. That's how they think, that's all they care about. And they start to use the CIA in a different manner. They start to use it aggressively as a tool. At the same time, there's other countries doing these kinds of things. And the backdrop of this is that they actively overthrow the prime minister of Iran at the same time who had nationalized um, the petroleum industry. And they get their first taste of, we can control countries without actually fighting anyone. We can back an insurrection. And they begin to put into plan. Which something that it's something that becomes America's favorite pastime. Oh yeah. This is the first instances of the CIA becoming what the CIA is. And they put into plan what's called Operation Success. <laughs> Operation <laughs> And it's capitalized PB success. And I've read a huge portions of CIA documents about them too. And Mark is like dying right now. Oh, oh. oh and it's named exactly for the reason you're laughing. Yeah, yeah. They're like, we, were, we succeeded once. This one, it'll be so successful. It's called success. Operation success. That is the, oh my oh gosh. We are the worst. I'm gonna have to cut half of this out. I can't even put a thought together on that. Operation Success. And I've actually read a decent Operation amount of- Operation Overcompensation. 
And I've actually read a decent amount of the uh, declassified material uh, that's you know, my primary sources for this. And it's bizarre reading these CIA history, um, CIA like writes history accounts of its own stuff, and then they publish some of them. And you read through it, and it's like heavily redacted. And they don't do it with like the classic black line. They actually do it with uh, brackets around blanks of where names are. So you know what's happening, but you don't know who did anything. And so they'll be like, and giant blank here made a decision to do this with giant blank here on this day. And then... Hakobo Arbenz, and you, you can only see a few names. It's right. giant blanks everywhere. There's entire pages where just listing names, and they won't tell you what the name are. It's it's weird. They were super confident that this would work, and this you can tell by the name. Yes, and this plan that they developed, Operation Success, was dependent on the fact that there was that large exile population of Guatemalans within Central America that were fomenting their own rebellions. I mean, they tried 24 different, 24, 25 different coup attempts on Arevalo. They hadn't really done as many against Arbenz. They had attacked one city and they had really, really attacked hard and they had lost. The army had crushed the revolt. So the idea here is you, the Americans would do two things. First, they would provide the material that a revolt would need. They would train the troops, they would provide extra troops, and they would give them more modern weapons. And two, they would start a propaganda campaign within Guatemala to help to demoralize the population. And in Glehesi's book, one of the most hilarious things is him just ridiculing all the different Guatemalan exiles who are trying to get the CIA to back their coup. So there's a large group of these men, and they keep going to various American embassies in Mexico and Nicaragua and Costa Rica and saying, hey, if you just give me three bombers, four aircraft carriers, and <laughs> 2,000 troops. I got another 20,000 troops in Guatemala that'll support me. And the diplomat nods and goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Prove it. Right. And they can't. Right. No aircraft carrier for you. No. But the basic idea is these guys show up and saying, hey, give me all the things I need, and I will go overthrow the country. So they have these willing participants, and they start to try to figure out the CIA, Dulles and Dulles, try to figure out who's going to be their new leader. They go through a variety of different guys, and they finally land on this man by the name of Castillo Armas. And I think in every book I've read about this, he's just described in the same way. He is stupid and immaculately dressed, but he is brave and well-liked and just the most perfect candidate for this. He does sound like somebody that would get put in charge of Operation Success. But he is just a virulent anti-communist, just above and beyond. And he had been actively pursuing the different embassies to, you know, help him. So the CIA says, all right, Arbenz is moving more and more to the left. And he starts to, he legalizes the Communist Party and he starts to really look dangerous to them more so. He actually, Arbenz tries to reach out to like the Soviet Union and say, hey, maybe you need to help us because we are starting to pick up that the United States is gonna attack. And the Soviet Union goes, who are you? Where are you? We're not gonna give you anything. Right. So he tries and they don't even wanna engage. So he's alone for all intents and purposes. And all those other Democrat movements I talked about, they're all squelched and gone too. He is alone at this point. So the CIA then starts to pump material into the country in the late 1940s. And one of the main things they do is they decide to change their ambassador to Guatemala. And they bring in this guy 
um, by the name of John Purifoy. Now, Purifoy, he's described as a man who doesn't read. He is a man who is so confident in what he believes that he doesn't need to find um, outside information. He had gotten his history as a ambassador bully in Greece, where he had bullied that country into suppressing its socialistic movement. He arrives in late 1953, and he sets up his propaganda movement within Guatemala in the American embassy, and he starts to set up meetings with Arbenz and Arbenz's wife, and he has dinner with them, and he just keeps challenging them, you are communist, you are communist. They keep telling him, not really, no we're not, we're just trying to improve our country, and he keeps saying it doesn't matter. Look at all this evidence I have. The Communist Party exists. You're nationalizing the land. You had a moment of silence for Stalin. They actually did that. And it was, and they try to argue it away, but he just keeps saying, no, you're communist. No, you're communist. Until you stop doing these things, you're communist. He has multiple meetings with Guillermo Torrieo, who is the ambassador to Washington. And the ambassador is just like at his wit's end trying to convince this guy that they aren't, they aren't as right, uh, left-wing as they think they are. Why is the CIA is establishing these different camps in um, Honduras is where they establish them. They start to pump material into Armas's movement. They gather up some of those exiles to form the core of an army, and they um, train a bunch of other Central American troops from the various dictatorships, and they add in a bunch of American mercenaries, and they start to train over about six months this rebel force in Honduras, which is to the south of Guatemala. This is the most depressing training montage I've ever heard of. It really is. Where And then within Guatemala, they set up a radio tower and they train three Guatemalans to become these like radio hosts to start to pump propaganda out. Arbenz is failing. An invasion is coming. Thousands of troops are going to pour into the city. Brace yourself for the civil war that is being caused because your president is a communist etc etc the catholic church which had been more or less removed from democracy brings in a, um, a priest like the um, i think it's actually the cardinal or whatever the main priest leader is in uh, a pope he's not the pope <laughs> i think he's the archbishop of guatemala is what he is that's what i was looking for um men by the name of ariano and he starts to spread um the same basic propaganda through the church so you see the middle class starting to lose its support for Arbenz as this is happening. They see that the, their lives are better, but now there's danger. Active rumors are going around that the Americans are sponsoring a coup, and the Americans will invade if the coup fails. And so Arbenz is hearing all this, and he, in January of 1954, he publicly declares that this is happening. And he says, hey, stop doing this. Mm -hmm. And he's just ignored. The United States begins to use the organization... Organization of American States, which is like the um, the UN of just Latin America, so it's that you know super government body, but it's a smaller group, and they start to actively criticize Arbenz in Guatemala, and they isolate them. They begin to institute economic sanctions and prevent them from, you know, easily moving their materials around. All the while, they're training this army and they're pumping propaganda at the people as the army trains. So just waiting for the army to train. So all of 1954 is when like the leaflets start to fall from the sky, threatening the people that this civil war is gonna begin. You need to stop supporting Arbenz. But Arbenz is confident because he still has the army and the army is strong. He has reformed it. It's actually a legitimate army. It can defeat this rebel force. He knows what the rebel force is. He knows he has more troops and his troops are loyal. The rebel forces, they're, they're mercenaries. I mean, these are not good fighters. And Arbenz is an idiot and yeah, he knows and, that. And he's been in the military since 
a lot of those people were still in the country. Like he, he should know a large portion of what he's up against. Exactly. And so he's confident that he can win, but the people aren't so much. So in May, Armas invades. And he invades in kind of a multi-prong invasion. They go about five miles into the border and stop. They're supposed to have taken Puerto Barrios and a couple of the other big cities, but they're pretty much instantly fought against. The natives start to you know, burn bridges and prevent them from fighting. And they also are pretty cowardly, and they just stop. And there's not a lot of activity going on. The CIA goes, all right, we need to help them. And they start to take planes, old World War II planes, that are very inadequate, and they start to bomb and strafe Guatemala City and some of the other cities. At first, it fails miserably. Three of their 12 planes are either shot down or the American pilots run out of fuel. <laughs> okay. The planes are so in, okay. inadequate for this task that the guys actually have to throw grenades out of the cockpit to make bombs explode. They have That's... to support this with their radio system. Wait, hold on. So they have semi-automatic bombs? Pretty much. <laughs> and they have to like reach out of their cockpit and fire a machine gun like by hand. And the radio broadcast has to play bomb sounds from loudspeakers all over Guatemala to help make it seem scarier. This is like Monty Python comedy. And it's not really being that successful. But the one thing that benefits them is this air attack um, scares off the Guatemalan, quote, Air Force. They were like three planes. And yeah. all of the pilots leave and Arben's grounds the Air Force. So now he can't even fight back. Right. This is so ineptly done that there's one example where they want to destroy the Guatemalan radio, which was an act of competition with the Liberation Army, as they were called, their radio. They try to bomb that radio, and they're given explicit instructions. Do not bomb the building with the tiles. Bomb the concrete building, because there are two radio antennae, there's two radio towers. One is run by a bunch of American missionaries. One is run by the Guatemalan Army. Bomb the one that is a concrete building. I, Guess which to, one they bombed. Not to get ahead of anything here. <laughs> so, of course, they bombed the American missionaries, who are just lucky enough to not be there at the time. Oh, my god! And they're forced to jam the Guatemalan radio instead. Right. There's one instance where they try to bomb Honduran ships and then blame the Guatemalans and help hopefully have Honduras invade. And Honduras just looks at them and is like, you did this. Well, no, Honduras was actively on their side. Oh. Everyone else was actively on their side. And Honduras basically, this one's really bad. So they bomb the Honduran boats, and the Honduran politicians can't agree on what was bombed and by who at what time. And it all just is an obvious plot. Basically, the Hondurans present the attack so badly that everyone's like, yeah, that's fake. Oh, okay. So it wasn't even like a real bombing kind of thing. It was, it was like a, a real bombing, but it... And it really bombed something. It just didn't oh work my at God. all. This is, this is comically bad. And so Arbenz is panicking at this point. Apparently he's pretty much, he's heavily drinking. He is actively trying to consult his different military leaders and saying, all right, they're invading. Let's go fight them. So they, they send the military and there's one battle. And the Liberation Army of Aramas is able to take over the city of Chiquimula and the Arben sends his military. Remember, the cities are being bombed every day. The population is terrified. People start to flee the cities and somehow don't find any armies as they walk away. But they're, they're like, oh, we're lucky. Right, right. Every single one of them is like, wow, it's really lucky that we went west. Yeah. 
East, North, whatever it whatever. is. Yeah. So Arben sends his military, and the military doesn't do anything. When he sends his military to fight the Liberation Army, they just stand and stare at each other because he's losing the support of the military. They, they being the officer corps, starts to realize that it's to their advantage to no longer support Hokobo Arbenz. Because military dictatorship is in the future. They know they're going to lose. So even if they destroy Armas's invasion, which they can, their fear and what is being actively spread across the propaganda radio is that the United States will invade or someone, they'll fund someone else to invade. And the United States had done that in the recent past. So they decide, well, maybe we should take matters into our own hands. And they initially do it. The leader of the military, a man by the name of Diaz, he says, I want to maintain this democracy, but Arbenz needs to go because that was the thing that this coup wanted. Now, the Americans were, were saying, we just want Arbenz to go. But in reality, behind the scenes, they were going to put Armas in power. But when they're communicating to these military guys who are starting to defect, they are non-committal to these, to, to Diaz, is really the guy involved. And he says, and um, Purifoy, in his bullying, is able to convince Diaz that he will keep Diaz in power and form a junta and keep the democratic movement going. They didn't want to go all the way back to dictatorship. The military was still in favor of a lot of Arbenz's ideas. Interesting. And so given this false promise they uh, tell Arbenz to resign. And Arbenz just does. And that it's this most anticlimactic ending. What he does do right before he resigns is he starts to try to find a way to get some weapons. They manage to get some weapons from Czechoslovakia. And they're not great weapons, but as this is all unfolding, Arbenz does start to try to fight back. He thinks the army's gonna help him, but he knows the only way he's going to like win is if he arms the populace. And we know he resigns, but he before that happens, he's like, I gotta arm the populace. But if he arms the populace, he loses the military. Right. Because they don't want that to happen. So even though he buys these weapons that he gets from Czechoslovakia on this long, torturous ship route that has its own chapter, he can't give them until the very end, one week before he ends up resigning, right as Diaz's army is facing the Liberation Army, they're just staring at each other. He says, I need every labor union leader, every citizen to go into the like central areas of their cities. We're going to arm you. We're going to train you. We're going to fight back. The communists are pushing, pushing, pushing this, the 200 or so communists that exist. The labor unions are supporting this as well. No one shows up. Now, under Arevalo, twice they had called on the people and armed the people and fought against the dictatorship and the military. Now when Arbenz needs them, because of the propaganda campaign, because of the threat of the United States, because of the bombings, the people are terrified, and a tiny number show up. The countryside's still resisting somewhat. The army that has been engaged already is fighting, but the main corps isn't fighting, and the people have given up. And that's why Arbenz resigns. And he simply walks across the street, goes home, and eventually goes to his, an embassy and leaves the country. Now, there's two directions that this goes. First of all, one of the few people who did show up to fight back a guerrilla campaign was a man by the name of Ernesto Che Guevara, the famous t-shirt guy, <laughs> as I like to call him. <laughs> I'm sure he and his family are thrilled with that. Oh, he's very dead. Che Guevara was an Argentine uh, man who was in Guatemala, and he was 
uh, he was there for the end days of our bends, and that helps to motivate him to participate in many guerrilla campaigns, which is why he's so famous. And he joins Fidel Castro and helps to overthrow Cuba. But he was like, we, why don't we all just go to the, up to the countryside and fight a guerrilla war campaign? That ends up happening. After Arbenz leaves office, Castillo Armas, with a lot of jogging position, he is put into power and proved to be as, as inept of a leader as they thought he was. He is assassinated in three years. And a succession of military dictatorships follows him. But the people in the countryside had seen their lives get better. And Armas clamped down on it and removed all of the reform and reverted it back to what it was before Arevalo. Back to the Ubico times. He removes all freedom, all of the freedoms, and reverts the country back to pure dictatorship. And he's assassinated later for other reasons. Good. And then there's a 30-plus year civil war between the natives in the countryside who had that taste of reform fighting against the military with hundreds of thousands of deaths. And I remember the reason for this happening is American economic interests and a fear of communism overthrew this generally reforming government. And also just a not communist government. And they really weren't that communist. It's hard. I, I, have, yeah. I can't say they weren't communists because they, they, they were to an extent. Communist. And the, what they were doing is pretty moderate policy that was clearly improving the life, lives and economics of their country. It was a good investment all of a sudden to invest in Guatemala. And that was ruined. And Guatemala is still suffering from this. It's got one of the highest murder rates in the world. I think it's either first or second in the world. And that's, that's what becomes of this coup. And it makes the CIA feel that they're invincible. And they can do this anywhere and everywhere. And when you read Bitter Fruit, the American perspective, you realize how badly the coup was run. They could have failed at many different times. But the power of the government, and as Glehesi says in his book, the just natural depression and fear of the Guatemalan people made it successful. The CIA does this again and again throughout history. Now the other line is what happens to Arbenz. Thankfully, when Ar Armas takes power, he just simply exiles everybody. So those communists then find their way into other different movements, and most of them, such as Fortuny, live out their lives as exiles for another 20, 30 years. Arbenz finds himself in the most awful position of hated by the conservative element that wanted to overthrow him, but also now distrusted by the left wing that has become incensed and spreading throughout Latin America. Once this coup happened, every single Latin American country in the area, even though they were under dictatorships, have spontaneous uprisings and begin to develop their own left-wing movements. This coup directly leads to the numerous left-wing guerrilla civil wars that occur in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Cuba. All of these places see what the U.S. does and go, no. But they hate our Benz for resigning. Interesting. When he did. But he had no choice. Right. He had lost the army. He had been promised by Diaz that all of the movement would stay intact, and Diaz wasn't lying. He was in, They were naive to believe that. But he was operating under good faith. And they were both operating under good faith. Yeah, and also the people didn't show up for him. And the, Yeah, the people just weren't there. Yeah. So when he leaves and goes into exile, I don't remember where he goes into exile, he starts to try to tour around and like help and help spread these social movements, and he does become an actual communist in a couple of years, and no one trusts him. His daughter commits suicide because 
the dynamic between her parents and her life is so bad because of how tortured her family is because of this. Arbenz becomes an alcoholic and drowns in his bathtub about 20 years after all these events. And this was a man who was a legitimate reformer, was the impetus for this blossoming of a country, and saw an opportunity to help. And that's how he ends up. It's the most unfair ending to a politician's life. This is one of those stories where it seems like the bad guys win. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you and I sitting here in California are team bad guy technically, but... I understand. But yeah, yeah. The social reform fails and status quo is forcibly pushed back into place, even though it doesn't actually go back. You can't go back from something like no, that, as can't. you see in all of the other countries around Guatemala in the throes of this. But yeah, not a, not a great happy ending for that one. Though I do fully understand the belief that communism is bad. It has proven to not work. It has proven to be detrimental to basic human rights, though there are some instances where it can be positive and positively used, different socialistic ideas. I mean, you got to be open to that a little bit. Right. And so I can understand why the American government was like, whoa, no, we got to get these communists out. But the people that they supported and the negative repercussions of this and how inept and lucky they were to have, have it success, be successful at all is so irritating and hundreds of thousands of people die because of this to end this story the legacy of Jacobo Arbenz is a good one he was the first real reformer of a backward area he took a feudal state and he transitioned them into a capitalist state but imperial hubris on the part of the United States something that we don't believe we do squelched him killed him and utterly devastated a country with just as much of a right to self-determination as the United States. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Footnotes. To pick up a copy of Bitter Fruit or Shattered Hope and read more about this story, you can follow the link in our show notes. Uh, to discuss this episode, whether or not potassium is worth it, and whether or not the guy who got women to start smoking is a good person or not, join us on our Facebook group. Link in the description as well. Uh, we release new episodes the first Tuesday of every month. If you've got the time, we would love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out, so we appreciate the support. Thank you. We'll see you next time.